This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with the science journalist Sonia Shaw about her new book, The Next Great Migration, The Beauty and Terror of Life on the Move. It is a fine and lively book, Sonia, deserving of the subtitle. Your readers can be counted upon to know something about the terror of life on the move, but the beauty of it is less apparent. And they can look to you for an appreciative understanding that truth is beauty and beauty truth. Perhaps you can begin with some sort of measurement of the migrations now going forward everywhere in the world. Who and how many are on the move? Birds and plants and mollusks, as well as human beings. Well, we know that around 80% of species are on the move right now in sync with the shifting climate. So we've seen terrestrial species are moving about 20 kilometers per decade towards the poles. Marine creatures are moving about 75 kilometers per decade. You know, and those kind of averages obscure some really kind of remarkable migrations. Atlantic cod have shifted more than 200 kilometers every decade. Frogs and fungi in the Andes have climbed 400 meters over just the past 70 years. Um, Even coral reefs are moving, forests are moving, you know, these things that we think of as incredibly stationary. Coral polyps around Japan, for example, have moved 14 kilometers north every year since the 1930s. Forests in the Himalayas have climbed uphill by 19 meters per decade. And then, of course, we have all the human movement that's going on at the same time, which we don't track that well. But we do know that there's more people living outside of the countries of their birth than ever before. We have more displaced people today than at any time since the Second World War. Um, And of course, there's all the predictions of how many more people are going to have to move as the climate continues to change upwards of, you know, hundreds of millions, most likely. The the climate change you're speaking about is the warming. So moving to higher altitudes and moving to cooler latitudes, that's the direction of of the movement? Yeah, and that's, I think, what's probably most interesting about this kind of movement, because historically we've moved from east to west, you know, in general, um, But what we're seeing with climate change, people are going to be moving from south to north in a general sense and then up higher into the altitudes, which is sort of a different pattern. I mean, I think it's still unclear whether this is really, you know, significantly different um, in terms of scale of movement, because we just don't know that much about how much how, you know, the scale of human movements in the past. So this might be something that can happen over many decades or it could happen quickly. You know, all of that's going to be determined by our politics and the choices we make now. Before we get to that, the uh, I think you use a UN number that says something like 50 million people are on the move or will be by 2050. Yeah, I think the... The, the International Organization for Migration predicts around 200 million um, in the next couple decades. And the terror that you mention is apparent. I mean, you, you mention it in your second chapter, which is panic. And so most of us, we look at uh, refugees 
washing ashore in the Mediterranean or coming across the southern border of the United States and, and it, it brings with it the fear and, and notions of the degeneration of the race or, or the, the home population and talk something about the extent of the panic that we see pretty much every day in the newspapers. Well, I started this book, I started writing this book around 2015, which was when, of course, there was a spate of populist, anti-migrant, you know, political leaders who were came, coming into power around the world, not just in the United States with Donald Trump's administration, uh, but the UK, Brazil, India, etc. Um, we have more borders fortified with walls and fences today than at any time in history. So I think it's pretty clear that there's this sense of onslaught, you know, that, that people are moving in new ways and at different scales and from different places. And it alarms us. Um, and, it, and I think it really gets down to our expectations. You know, I think there's this sense of that we're entitled to everything kind of staying the same, people staying to the same places, people belonging in certain places. And then when that sort of natural balance or this sense of order gets disrupted, I think it, it causes a lot of anxiety. And I think we're seeing that in our politics and our culture right now. Where do we get the sense of, of order and, and things being in their rightful place and staying there? I mean, you, you talk about the ideas of Linnaeus in the 18th century were not too different from the ideas of Aristotle, that, that everything has its place. Talk about Linnaeus. Yeah, I mean, Carl Linnaeus is a, he's a very interesting figure. And, you know, he was doing his work as a naturalist at a time when Europeans were just discovering sort of the extent of biodiversity around the world. You know, there was the voyages of discovery and, and the beginnings of colonization and imperialism. All that was happening and, and people were discovering, you know, just a huge diversity of species, a jumble of things that they hadn't seen before. Different peoples, different plants, different animals. And so there was a real need um, among naturalists and others who wanted to kind of use and be able to control all of this diversity to kind of classify it, you know, to have a common language with which to understand what are, what are all these things, you know, are whales a kind of fish or are they, kind, are they more similar to us? You know, there's it's kind of really basic questions. And Carl Linnaeus kind of stepped into that and said, well, I, you know, I'm going to come up with this way of classifying everything. And he created this binomial system that we still use today to name almost everything. And, you know, the way he did it was essentially to say, well, if I, f I find this certain species in this one place, well, that's where it belongs. You know, that's where it ha has always been. That's where it will always stay. He didn't really explicitly consider whether things move at all, because he really started from the assumption that nature is an expression of God's perfection. And so, God had put everything in a certain place. And since God was perfect, you know, nature was perfect. And, and wherever God had put things, well, that's where it always belonged. That's where it would always stay. So he named things according to their places. And we've kept that 
habit of mine since then. You know, we call the, the, the maple, the Japanese maple, we call the goose, the Canadian goose, you know, we kind of attach places to wild species as if they're kind of one in the same. And it kind of, it, it really erases all, even the possibility that they'd moved in the past or would move in the future. Linnaeus is writing in the 1770s, and then we have Darwin in 1869. Does Darwin talk about movement, evolution of, of species? Does he offer a, a, a contrary view to Linnaeus? He did, actually, but he wasn't. You know, he, I was really surprised to find how much controversy well of course darwin's ideas were controversial at the time because he was saying humans are related to other animals and that was you know a, a forbidden idea even by the 1860s but people really objected to his idea of 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 animals moving around you know and he he did a, a series of really kind of inconclusive but suggestive experiments to show like um that seeds could persist, you know, even if they were underwater for months and had been passed through a bird and, and come out the other side, and then he would plant them and they would sprout. And he sort of determined that, well, a lot of these, you know, a lot of these living things can actually withstand huge amounts of travel over time. Um, so he kind of imagined a lot of long distance sort of haphazard dispersals where, a bird might pick up a seed from one part of the country and carry it in a little bit of mud in their feathers or, um, you know, over to another part of the continent that animal, terrestrial animals could be washed out to sea in storms and actually survive trans-oceanic crossings to colonize new places and little islands and different places. And, you know, people really did not accept that I, those ideas at the time. And he didn't really push them. I mean, he wrote about them, but he, it wasn't central to his ideas around natural selection, which were the ones that were most readily adopted over time. So a lot of Darwin's ideas have actually been lost. And I think the, this idea of long distance dispersals that animals that maybe we wouldn't think could move of their own locomotion actually have all kinds of ways of traveling around and, and distributing themselves around the planet. Um, so he was trying to explain how that happened, you know, how the biogeography of the planet had been mapped out through animals moving themselves around on currents, on winds, through other animals, locomotion, people carrying them around, other animals and plants carrying them around. But that wasn't really accepted until quite recently with, you know, now we have GPS and, and solar technology and we can actually perspectively track where animals go. And it's only now in the last 10 years that biologists are really understanding how far animals really do move. And in many cases, they're finding, well, they move a lot farther than we ever thought before. Right. I mean, they can get across mountains we thought were impassable and seas that we were thought were also impassable, right? Yeah. So there's this whole sense of like, the planet was full of all these barriers, geographic barriers to movement and animals, you know, wouldn't be able to figure those out and wouldn't be able to move into new places. And we, we really had this idea of animal, most wild species as very sedentary in a way, you know, that uh, migrations, long distance movements were considered anomalous, exceptional, rare, marginal, 
often disruptive, you know, and, and really not like the standard behavior. So it's not so much that people looked into it and thought, oh, that, you know, and and didn't see it, but people really just weren't looking into those kind of movements until quite recently, in part because it was just also really difficult, you know, I mean, animals are, their their movements are obscure to us, and we only catch them in glimpses episodically. So it's very difficult to kind of put together the whole story of how many of these creatures can move over across these geographic barriers. But you, you say that animals and plants have been transgressing borders, you know, for as long as they've been around. I mean, in other words, it's, 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 na- it's natural. It, it's not unnatural. I mean, movement is, is the root of all things. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what the science is telling us now, you know, that, that this phenomenon that we've thought of as on the edges of natural experience and natural phenomena is actually really quite central. Most thing, most animals that are being tracked now prospectively, you know, scientists are finding they move at a far greater scale and, and pace and level of complexity than was previously expected. I'm mean, really just like breaking records with animal movements all the time. So, you know, I think there's a new understanding of um, how, if there is this much movement, right? Like, what does that tell us about how ecosystems are formed and how they sustain themselves? I mean, we know things like rainforest trees, 90% of them rely on animals on the move for the, the, the seed dispersal. So the very basic framework of any ecosystem is, of course, the plants, the diversity of plants that are there. And that's determined by which seeds get to sprout there, which is in turn determined by animals that are moving around, you know, and their patterns of movement. And it's so critical for all so the, for those plants to move around that they actually have all these tricks to, you know, entice different species to pick them up and move them around. So we can see little glimpses of what movement has meant for ecosystems. But I think that's really, that work is just starting now um, because movement has not been something that biologists have been looking into very deeply until quite recently. And you find whole forests move, you know, in response to glaciers. I mean, it's not just single species, but it's entire ecosystems. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think we have this idea of the planet as sort of stable and still, you know, with these with solid barriers around them. But really, it's it's so much more fluid and movable than that. I mean, we we teach our kids, you know, from when they're little that certain animals kind of belong in certain places as if they're one and the same with their places, you know, the camel standing in for the Middle East or the bear standing in for North America or, or the great example of the camel standing in for uh, for the Middle East. And, you know, if you look at the biogeography of a camel in a larger time frame, it's moved all around the place. You know, it's originated in North America. It's moved into Australia. It's been in parts of Asia. You know, it's it's been in all these different places so really when we say, well, it's from this one location, that's where it's always belonged, it's just a snapshot in time. So if we step back, we can see so much more mobility as sort of the bigger context. Um, and so it, it, given that, and we can see its centrality in our own past, you know, in the human past, where we've thought of our own movements as very episodic also, you know, there's a conventional idea of the out of Africa 
migration that we all kind of originated in Africa. And then we, we walked out into all the continents and peopled them. And then we kind of stayed still for millennia until modern transportation made it easy for us to move again. But what paleogenetics and, and you know, archaeology and linguistic evidence is telling us is that, in fact, we were moving all along. You know, we walked out of Africa and went into the Americas and then walked back into Asia and walked back into Africa and Europe. And, and again, you know, in all these complicated ways, it was just as intricate and, and multilayered in terms of the the migration routes we took as, as they are today. Um, and that was in the you know, our distant past, ancient past, when we, we didn't have modern technology. People walked into the Tibetan plateau um, where there's not even enough oxygen to breathe. And they didn't just do that once or twice in prehistoric times. They did it multiple times, multiple waves of migration. And those are the ones that succeeded. I mean, that doesn't even count all the ones that failed that we don't know about. So, you know, you think about, well, why why did we do that, right? We didn't run out of food in Africa. We didn't run out of sunshine and all the things that we need to survive in Africa. All those things still were there. They're still there now, but we left anyway, and we kept moving all along. So I think those that's a really important important fact about our past that we need to assimilate in our ideas about ourselves. You know, this idea of migration as driven by desperation and crisis and and being exceptional and rare you know that's not what the that's not what our own past is is telling us what what our own past is showing us is that migration has really been a central part of an experience do we know why i mean i mean do we have any answer to that i mean here here we are in africa and we have food and water and and uh, sunshine but yet we decide to walk out and about and uh, are we programmed to do that or do, do, do we have reasons to do that did reasons change is it all about uh, climate or is it something else or do we know well i don't think we know but i think we can we can there's clues you know i mean these are complex behaviors so of course there's probably some genetic component but it's it won't be a simple one. You know, there'll be lots of different factors that shape such a complex behavior like migration. But we know that in in other species that, you know, migration is a way to adapt to environmental changes. The fact that, you know, the environment is is patchy. You know, there's some places where there's a lot of stuff and then there's other places where there's less stuff or different stuff, you know. So you can see how that shapes the alacrity with which species will migrate. So for example, bird species that rely on um, fruits, which are only seasonally available, they migrate more than bird species then that feed on insects in the forest, for example, which are really available year round. Bats that live in trees migrate more than bat species that live in caves. Arthropods that live in seasonal ponds migrate more than arthropods who live inside forests. So if you live in an environment that is changeable, you're more likely to migrate. And there's actually a ratio for that. Like if you, you know, if if the time it takes to reproduce the next generation, if that time is longer than the time that your environment will be stable, 
then it's quite likely that you will evolve to migrate into new places. And so it, it seems that migration is a, be, a complex behavior that is kind of part of our repertoire and a part of lots of species repertoire, and it can get activated during periods of change. And it's a way to adapt to change. And then it's also a way to create communities that are resilient to change. You know, if you think about what cultural change is about, what is innovation about, it's new ideas, new ways of doing things, new ways of thinking. Well, where do those come from? You know, if you have, if our ideas are shaped by our environments, then we bring, when we take those ideas and ways of living with us, when we move into new places, we are inserting that diversity and innovation into those new places. And that is exactly what makes cultural and innovation proceed. And that kind of diversity is also what makes us resilient to changes that are going to happen. You know, if you all, if everyone's the same and, and you have the, you have a lot of homogeneity, you know, sometimes that can be really perfect if you're perfectly, you know, adapted to your environment and the environment is stable it's homogeneity is, is fine. Like that's, that's great. But as soon as it starts to change, then you're extremely vulnerable. You know, one pathogen can come into a homogenous society. And if everyone's kind of the same, it can wipe everybody out or a new cultural challenge that, you know, nobody can kind of think their way out of and, and the whole society collapses, you know, to have resilience, you need some diversity in there, diversity of opinions and ideas and ways of living um, in order to withstand those kinds of challenges, whether they're biological or cultural or political or whatever. And migrating, you know, moving into new places, adapting to those places, coming up with new ways of living in those places, and then moving again and bringing that into other places as we continue to move seems to be this way that we have, that, that migration plays this role of like, kind of like a connective tissue, inserting diversity into different places. And that kind of dynamic of adaptation and bringing, you know, developing some innovations and then bringing those into new places is, you know, part of why migration works for us. It's part of why it's been adaptive in a planet that is always changing. You know, we're, we think of climate change as very severe and, and, um, and it is, but primarily because we're not dealing with it at all. In the past, we, we have survived periods of rapid change, climate change, environmental changes of other kinds, you know, at different rates and scales, of course, but we have it in ourselves. You know, we have these systems of adapting to to new situations. And migration is really central to that. You know, it's really the the way that we can make ourselves more resilient to change, which is why it's so ironic that we're so panicked about it when it starts to happen. Well, I mean, it, it can it can look scary on the ground. I mean, just the way an invasive species can get into a lake and destroy most of the fish, the resident fish. But the uh, so in the short term, uh, migration can look like an invasive species and be frightening. In the, in the long term, it 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 becomes beautiful. I think that's right. I think it's also true that we don't see a lot of migration that doesn't become invasive, quote unquote, invasive, as you say, you know, a lot of migration is happening 
beneath our notice. Um, it's people moving into new places and assimilating. You know, when there's no barriers, people assimilate really quickly. Um, and that's been known for decades now. It's been quantified. Our bot, even our bodies change when we go into new places. We're, we're, we're changelings. We kind of transform ourselves when we move into new places. And, um, and you can kind of see that in, in our own bodily dimensions changing. But, but most of the time, you know, when we move into new places, we assimilate, we, be, we kind of gravitate to the mean by all the indicators that people can look into that, you know, immigrants kind of conform to those really quickly within a generation, um, definitely within two. So that can happen pretty fast. Um, and I think we don't notice it when it doesn't cause a problem. So when migration is, and mostly it's not conspicuous, you know, most migration is, is, is something that we just, you know, ignore because it's happening all the time and we're not really aware of it. So even with invasive species, you know, these like the purple loosestrife, for example, I remember um, when I was growing up, purple loosestrife was a considered a terrible invasive weed. And, you know, it was this tall, plant with the big purple flowers on the top. So it was, it was very conspicuous and you could see it, big stands of it along the highways and things. And um, money was spent, you know, in municipalities pulling all these pretty flowers up because they were not native and they were invasive and they were going to take over. Well, you know, over time they kind of subsided and now they're not considered a big problem at all. But I think a lot of that also is because they were so conspicuous. You know, they had these purple flowers. You could see them everywhere. You could see how well they were doing, and it kind of raises suspicions. Um, but then there's all these other species that move around into new places, and we either embrace them or we ignore them because only 10% of species that move into new places can actually establish a foothold, and then only 10% of those become pest-like that is become successful enough to threaten some other thing that humans value, whether it's, you know, crops or, or resident species or, you know, gardens or, you know, what health concerns. There's all kinds of ways in which new species can be disruptive and really damaging. But sometimes we don't mind that, right? Like, I mean, most of our crops are, are not native crops. Honeybees are not native. We like those. Earthworms, we, we like those. Those are not native. You know, there's, there's a long list of um, species that have moved into new places, and we don't have any problem with it at all. The, the migration out of Africa, I mean, the story that I was told, is that a true story? I mean, does do we all start in Africa? And if so, how long ago? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm never quite clear as, as to. I mean, the dates keep changing, and I so I wouldn't want to say for sure. And I, this is this is something like every there seems to be some new papers that are changing the dates of of like the periods of human migration and human evolution in different ways. But what I but I think the central idea that we originated in Africa is uncontested and consensus view. Um, but that's also relatively recent, like only in the 1960s, um, there were prominent theories that humans evolved in different places and every sort of different race of humans had a completely different evolutionary path that Africans evolved in Africa, that Europeans evolved in Europe, Asians evolved in, in Asia and reached different points in, in evolutionary scales. Um, all of these ideas are completely, you know, outdated now. But that was just in the 1960s. So really in living memory, there was a sense that 
we had all evolved separately um, and weren't even the same lineage so that we didn't have any shared migratory past either because we, you know, just evolved in all these different places and that's where we just stayed put. But, but, so, in fact, we are all hybrids. We're all mongrels. I mean, we're, 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 we've all made uh, some kind of adjustment. I mean, resilient. I mean, you say the human body itself is fluid and, 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 and can change its spots, <laughs> right? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is what, what we're learning you, what, from. Yeah, sorry. So how do we fit in the, the question of race? How does that work? Is, is, that, is that something we acquire on the move? Is, is that a, 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 an adjustment to climate? Where, where, where does the idea of race come from? Well, that's a huge question, but I think yeah, I know. You know, what, 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 what we know about sort of human biodiversity is that it's continuous, you know, that, that it, there aren't clear demarcate, clearly demarcated sort of borders that, okay, these are all the people who are European. These are all the people who are African. These are, you know, those are, those are constructs that we're able to see now, but the idea of race is sort of encoded in our biology has not borne out. You know, there's been really centuries of scientists who have tried to find the biological basis for this idea of race, and they've failed every step of the way. It hasn't made them give up. They they still still keep looking for that. That's not to say that we don't have diversity in the human species. We do. Um, of course, you know, we look different. We have shades of skin color and everything. But, it, you know, if you look at any any one aspect of what we think of as race, there's more of that kind of diversity within each of the so-called racial groups than there are differences between the racial group. Well, I mean, race is, of course, a subject very much in the news. And, and the uh, we tend, I think, to make too much of it, right? Assign, assign to it more fundamental importance than it warrants. I mean, you say that before, you know, in the old world, really before the 17th century, the, the question of race didn't come up. Yeah, I mean, it was, it, was a, it was a way of categorizing people that was relatively new at that time. So there is evidence that before that, you know, people noticed skin color differences, etc., um, but saw it as a gradation uh, that was continuous. And it, one theory is that, you know, and that is what it is, right? It is it, it is a gradation and, and it varies in each place. I mean, even in a, a single country like um, India, you'll see the same huge diversity in skin colors that you see in all of humans everywhere will be just in that one country or, or maybe a place like um, Indonesia or elsewhere. There's you know, there's parts of the world where you see all of that. And it has to do with latitude and our adaptations to latitude and, and getting vitamin D from the sun and things like that. Um, but all of us have genes for all the different skin colors. Um, it's just some of them are turned on and some of them are turned off at different times. So it's, it's a very fungible trait, um, skin color. Uh, and, you know, I'm always struck by this idea of 
the Asian race, you know, I'm, I'm, my parents are from India, but to think that I have something more in common with, you know, a person from Fiji and a person from Sri Lanka and a person from Northern Japan and Northern China and Southern India have something in common, you know, compared to something in common with the person next door to me in my suburb outside Baltimore, you know, that it just, it's, it makes no sense when you really think about it. And that's why the science has been so muddied. You know, we, racial groups, we just can't make them out in, in genetics and in physiological markers. And there's all these different ways we've tried to look for those clear boundaries. It's, it's not to say that they don't, there's no differences. There's, there's definitely differences between us, but it's, it's a gradation and it's fluid. So we're constantly kind of mixing and matching, which is why our genes overall are incredibly similar to each other. You know, we have, there's other species that are similar to us, other primates that don't live like that. So they, you know, chimpanzees live in separate populations. Even when their habitats overlap, they don't mix with each other. Um, they don't mate with each other. So if you look at their genetics, it's structured, right? There's borders between their genetic subgroups that you can see because they're geographically, they, they isolate themselves reproductively. Um, they don't mate, they don't mix. That's so true of humans. So whenever we move around into new places, we start sharing genes, you know, and sometimes you know, sometimes that might be consensual and sometimes that might be through wars and conquests and rape, but either way it happens. Like our genes get inserted into other populations. We mix and match them all the time, which is why you can't tell from, you know, our, our genetic structure. We're not like chimpanzees. We don't have clear borders between population groups because we're constantly mixing around. Right. I mean, the, one of the wonderful things about your book that, that uh, perhaps the reader won't or hasn't been mentioned is, but there are, you have many, there are sightings on your part. I mean, there are parts of the book where you're looking at birds or, or butterflies, and then there are parts of your book where you're talking to uh, refugees from one part of the world to another. I mean, you're talking about to people who are making making it across the Darien Gap between South America and Panama, or in the Mediterranean, where refugees from Africa are trying to make it into Europe, and that's what gives your book a great deal of uh, its charm and its scale. Is is there? And then your your own uh, family. I mean. Say a few words about that, Sonia. I mean, you follow your grandfather or great-grandfather back into the Himalayas? No, they're from, um, my family traces back to Gujarat, the port towns in Gujarat, um, which was itself a very mixed place, sort of historically. People came from all over and mixed mixed and matched uh, their genes in, in that part of India. And then my family moved sort of in the stepwise fashion that we see 
very commonly uh, in in people who migrate and all of us who migrate, um, which is from a rural area to the nearest city and then to a, a little, the next generation goes to the next city in a, a different part of the country. And then the next generation kind of hops the pond and leaves, you know, crosses international borders. And that's that's what happened to my family, too. And it was really, you know, kind of the central fact of my personal experience was that my parents had done that, you know, had taken that long distance migration. They left India and came to the New York City in the 1960s. And and I was born in, in New York, but really grew up with that sense of being out of place. And I think mostly because, you know, people would always ask me, where, where are you from? You know, and I would say Brooklyn. <laughs> they would say, no, where are you really from? You know, which is a pretty clear indication that, well, you you couldn't really be from Brooklyn. Um, That's not where you could possibly actually belong. And I think I kind of internalized that idea that I was somehow out of place, that it was somehow strange or anomalous that my body was situated on the North American continent. But at the same time, I'd go back to India with my parents and visit my family members there, and they made it perfectly clear that I didn't fit in there either. You know, I, I didn't say the words right. I didn't wear the clothes right. I didn't eat the right foods, or I didn't eat them the right way. There's a million, million ways in which they could tell that um, I was not in the right place. I was out of place there too. And I think both of those experiences kind of lent itself to this idea, which I didn't really examine, but until I wrote this book, that migration is something disruptive and and exceptional. You know, it, it, it kind of changes everything and it and it, it's it's sort of this thing that is, you know, lends itself to crisis. Like it it disrupts the fabric, it disrupts the balance. It's it's sort of there's an order of things and migration kind of screws it up. And that that was that was my sense of myself, even, you know, which is why when I started reporting on migration, my first impulse was to report on migration as a crisis, as a as a catastrophic event that would you know either lead to strife or war or conflict or disease, you know, so, something something bad, some something some kind of crisis would emerge if there was a lot of migration. You know, I, I definitely approached migration with that mindset when I first started doing this reporting. But there still is, I mean, all over the world at the moment, the uh, that sense of crisis. I mean, in, in, in a funny way, I mean, we're all migrants of, of one sort or another, particularly in the United States. I mean, I, I, I think you have somewhere in your book, you talk about the number of, you know, foreign-born or foreign- descent as opposed to native born. I mean, the, I mean, the whole story of America has been a story of movement. Oh, absolutely. I mean, most of us are only one or two generations away from an act of long distance migrations. I mean, if you think about Donald Trump, you know, the most famous xenophobe, you know, in, in recent times, and his mother was an immigrant and he's just completely erased that from his story of himself. And so have all his, all of his followers, but she arrived from Scotland with no money. She worked as a domestic, she worked, she was a maid, um, penniless immigrant. 
and that was his mother. So he, he's, he's very connected to long distance migration and yet has completely erased that. So, so that makes me, that makes you wonder, right? Like, are, are we really talking about migration as a problem when we are so alarmed about it? Or is it the migration of certain kinds of people? Is it really about the number of people who are coming or is it more about who is coming? I think, I think, you know, our ideas about race and our fears about people who are different from us, who look different from us, and, and our whole idea of a racial hierarchy, I think, is what's really being challenged by the way migration is unfolding now, because we see people from the South where skins are darker and people moving into the North where skins are lighter. And that has been such a critical component of our ideas about a racial hierarchy. And I think that's really, you know, just creates a whole, it, it creates the momentum for xenophobia and, you know, the whole arguments around migration are really colored with that, that lens. Last question then, let me ask you the, the title. The, the title is the next great migration, but aren't we undergoing that now? I mean, wh where is the next? I mean, that's, that's a good point. I think partly what I was hoping is that the next great migration is the one that we embrace. You know, the, the one that we, when we finally say, look, yes, it's my, it's, it's disruptive for people to move into new places. It's disruptive for new people to move into my neighborhood and to have to accommodate that. It's disruptive for me to have to move into a new place. All change is disruptive. There's no doubt about it. But what we can see in the broader context is that the benefits have outweighed the risks. That's why migration has been so central in our own past and, and in nature. Um, and so we can try to say, well, migration is happening now. We don't want it. We're going to try to turn the tap off. We're going to try to pull up the ladders and close the doors. But it's going to continue anyway. We can we can treat it as a crisis or we can embrace it as something that's actually going to help us in this period of change. It's it's our adaptive response to change. And so if, if change is happening anyway, if the climate is changing, the environment is changing, migration is not a crisis in that scenario. Migration can be part of the solution to that. Oh, that's that's wonderful. That's 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 the point of the of your last chapter, safe passage, right? Safe passage is the acceptance of, of the uh, change as a good thing. I mean, we have this, what I consider a beautiful impulse to move. It takes a lot of courage to do that. And yet we do it anyway. You know, you go off into the unknown, you don't have your kin there, you don't have your network there, you do it anyway. You know, wild species do it, humans do it. It's it's a beautiful thing, really. And this is something we could harness to help us survive this period of rapid change that we're entering instead of trying to pretend it's something we can just turn off. And, and I, I'm hopeful that we'll get there because really, what's the alternative? Are we going to trap people? You know, is that, is that the world we want to live in? Because really, when we do that, we make migration even more disruptive than it has to be. You know, if we if we don't provide, say, legal ways for people to move, if we don't 
provide passage for wild species to move into new places. Well, they don't stop. They don't just go away. They, they become trapped there. And then, you know, you reach a crisis point and you have a mass movement that is unregulated, that is chaotic, that is crisis driven, you know, and we're really kind of, it's, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. I mean, we can either make migration manageable. We can maximize the benefits. We can minimize the risks. But that means that first we have to accept migration as a reality, that it's something that we do. It's something that we should want to do and that we should try to facilitate rather than try to somehow suppress. Well, on that note, that's a wonderful end of the conversation, Sonia. Thank, thank you very, very much for talking to us today. Sonia Shaw, author of the new book, The Next Great Migration, The Beauty and Terror of Life on the Move. Thank you. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.